which basically would mean that it's illegal for European companies to put data that is privacy sensitive in another country like the United States. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the clouds as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Altitude. I am Woody Woodworth. Really awesome episode today. We are gonna learn all about Sovereign Cloud from a deep expert in this topic, Rimco Neeston. Did I get your last name correct? Yeah, so, so in English uh, pronunciation, it's, it's pretty okay, yeah. And he's joining us all the way across the pond from the Netherlands, which has been your home for... My life, yeah. Yeah, good deal. So Rimco, tell me a little bit just about yourself. You work for a outfit called Uniserver, right? That is correct. And I've been working there for over 20 years now which is pretty much uh, all of my uh, career, almost. And um, I've known this, uh, the company since I was still at, uh, at uni. It's founded by an old classmate of mine, actually. So this is why uh, I have a long history here, and it's still fun uh, to work here. Excellent. And I know we were talking before the episode, you said that in your 20-year career at uh, Uniserver, you've done just about everything in terms of the technology stack, right? Yeah, well, yeah, well, pretty much. So, so it means I have a uh, technical background uh, as a system engineer, as a network engineer, as a security specialist, as a really, I, I did a lot of technical stuff and all the technical disciplines we have in the, in the company is something I have touched in the past uh, in some way. Uh, now, Uniserver specializes in sovereign workloads and sovereign workload hosting, right? So Uniserver builds and maintains and optimizes yeah. infrastructure for, for sovereign applications and customers that need to run applications uh, specifically. In, and by sovereign, we'll get into that. But in your context, this is for uh, customers that need to run workloads that abide by EU legislation. Is that correct? It's not really the only reason people come to Uniserver. And so we are a, a private cloud slash sovereign cloud infrastructure specialist in the country. Okay. Probably the biggest of its kind in the country. And we we run a pretty big VMware-based platform to run virtual machines in multi-tenant environment. And we've been doing that for the past 15 years. Wow. Do you provide any PaaS or SaaS services for your customers? Or do you find they mostly just want to run IaaS on the VMware platform? Pretty much the, the most of it is, uh, is IaaS. SaaS is and, and PaaS, we, we offer services in that department, but it's uh, the core business is EOS. And in terms of where these workloads, well, where the VMware infrastructure is actually built and, and hosted, is this needs to be in a specific place, right? You can't just put these servers anywhere because of the sensitivity uh, around the sovereign workload. So it needs to be somewhere in, on EU soil. Is that correct? It depends on the data and the, the classification and, uh, and, 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 and all the legislation that, that falls around it. So okay. we also have customers that just want to have a feeling that their data is within the country. Other customers want really, oh, if they need to call a service desk, they like to speak to a Dutch-speaking engineer. I see. And really a lot of customers just like us. 
So they tend to stay and uh, because the pricing and the availability is great. If you run IaaS workloads in the Netherlands, it's, it's pretty much okay to, uh, to run it on our platform. Also, we were talking before the show about the kind of different definitions of sovereign. And for our listeners, I think it would be good to kind of step through those. And, you know, it depends on the country you're in and the workload you're running. But for example, in Germany, their concept of sovereign can be different than the concept of sovereign in the Netherlands and, and mm -hmm. so forth and in how that data is secured and privatized. Walk us through some of those differences. Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's, it's good for uh, non-EU people uh, listening and watching this podcast to understand there's legislation coming from Brussels, emphasizing the need for uh, sovereignty of your data. This is becoming a bigger and a bigger topic within the EU and some other countries like France, they are, they've been protective uh, of their data more than, than we have been in the Netherlands. Uh, so so they're, they're different in that department. Uh, but overall, within the EU, there's there's really a, a growing thought. There's legislation coming mm -hmm. and there's growing concerns about uh, data sovereignty. So the topic is becoming bigger. How does one design your technology stack without giving away too much of your, your secret sauce to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and fit into the data privacy requirements that, say, the EU might demand? Is it about physical security? Is it about digital security? Is it about the kinds of access policies around the data that you provide? So zero trust might come up quite a bit for you. Is it a combination of these things? I guess what I'm asking is how complicated is it to really build and maintain this stuff? The complication lies within the people that, that actually touch the data and the systems that everything runs on. So if it, sovereignty is, is about Everyone that can touch the data and the systems falls within legislation, EU legislation. So there's, there's no contradictory uh, legislation coming from the United States or from China. I see. So that's really what sovereignty is about. And I know this is kind of a sensitive topic. As a non-EU you know, citizen, as a mm -hmm. citizen of the United States, I do not understand EU privacy law as well as I do uh, stateside privacy law. And just because, you know, I, I, I don't work in an EU medium or an EU sphere of influence. Is it fair to say that a lot of the EU law is more deeply focused on data privacy to protect the consumer compared to, say, stateside law or, or Chinese law? Is that correct? That for sure is, uh, is a fact. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of this has to do with kind of corporate oversight or government oversight so that if there is a request that comes from outside of an EU zone or outside of an EU sovereign space, yeah. that the EU laws can kick in and say, you know, you you actually by law don't have rights to, to get to that data or see that data. Yeah, that's correct. Or if you need to, you have to follow a process. There are certain rules uh, that have been made in the past. So, so we had before a thing called safe harbor which was really the EU uh, allowing EU companies and citizens to put their data, privacy sensitive data on United States soil, for instance. Okay. But that was taken down by a basically by a privacy activist from, from Austria, uh, Max Schrems. Interesting. So they told, they, they invalidated the safe harbor principle. Then came Privacy Shield, they, that got invalidated 
practically by the same guy last year in the summer. And now there's a data privacy framework and it's really a matter of time probably before it's, it gets invalidated again. Um, so which basically would mean that it's illegal for European companies to put data that is privacy sensitive in another country like the United States. So who is this individual again? This name is new to me. Yeah, Max yeah. <laughs> keeps invalidating this idea of sovereign data off you know, off of actual uh, EU soil. Who is this individual? The, 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 the guy is named Max Schrems. Okay. He's an Austrian lawyer and privacy activist. Okay. And there have been la- lawsuits uh, really led by him, and uh, it led to law- problems in legislation. From the outside in, he appears to be very vigilant about data privacy yeah. uh, w- within the EU context and certainly doesn't want to, to give an inch in terms of where that data can reside. He's kind of, to use the, this term in a classic sense, kind of conservative about where that data needs to reside. <laughs> <laughs> so here comes a difference between uh, the, uh, European countries as well. So the Dutch economy is pretty much open. So the average Dutch company uses Microsoft 365 portfolio pre- yeah. practically completely. So there's really a big question about uh, what companies are going to do uh, if sovereignty is uh, required uh, for certain types of data because practically everybody uses Microsoft Office in the Netherlands. Right. So if sovereignty is going to be required by certain laws, yeah, well, how, how are companies going to react to that? How do you have to deal with that? Yeah, that's a question I wanted to ask. We, we should get into that. It seems obviously like a big, important space. I mean, think about all of the economic activity that is centered around the EU, the trade, the commerce, the business, right? To, and, mm-hmm. and then the government of the EU itself and all of its offices and, and the data that that produces. It seems like companies would want in on that market, specifically the big CSPs. So, you know, AWS mm-hmm. and Azure yep. and GCP and so forth. Do they not have offerings that, that fit within that sphere of compliance? Yeah, they will. There's, there's joint ventures uh, with, with local uh, engineering teams managing Azure environments, for instance, or AWS environments. There's, there's, there's quite some initiatives really to, 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 to offer a kind of sovereign kind of Azure or a sovereign kind of AWS. They are there, but really the question boils down to um, which people can actually access the data still. So what is the, where's their company headquartered? I see. I see. So there's that, just like you said at the beginning of the podcast, that kind of comfort level where people that are your customers, part of the appeal is just, you know, this is on Dutch soil. It's maintained primarily by Dutch entities. And there's a comfort and a trust with that, that, that is maybe more difficult for other companies to, to earn. Uh, so there's, there's going to be legislation called NIST 2, cybercrime resiliency. Yeah. Uh, to increase that for European-based companies. So that's going to be a law. There's also a certification under the name EUCS. It's not finished yet, and it's also not uh, known how it's going to look. So th- there's going to be three levels of certification. So we want to aim for the high level. But yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's talks about a certain high plus level, which uh, requires that the cloud service provider is headquartered uh, essentially in the United, uh, or in the EU. I see. So if you want to reach to the high plus certification level, that would mean that, that you, you cannot have this if you are AWS or, or any other uh, United States headquartered company. 
I'm curious about what's, what's going to happen there. Yeah, you mentioned like three or four different legislative initiatives that are coming down the pike. I mean, how soon are these going to land? Is this a 2024 thing? NIST 2 is going to land in October this year. Oh, wow. There's probably an implementation period, and then it's going to take a few years before uh, auditors actually uh, want to enforce uh, things. Yeah, and so EUCS is not a mandatory thing, but it might be something like ISO 27001. Mm-hmm. that the market, market is going to make it mandatory for you. Do you feel that cloud shops, by cloud shops, I mean enterprises that are running their mm-hmm. workloads in mm-hmm. the cloud and part or whole or whatever, you know, do they have their arms around NIST and some of these changes coming up? Or is it going to be kind of a mad scramble? Like as soon as this stuff goes live, then people are going to be you know running around kind of wild-eyed trying to figure out how to make it work. Every self-respecting company that does something with IT in the country, that the people that I talk with, they all have this on their radar. Okay, okay. Yeah. So what does that mean for network design and network security design? Does it mean additional firewalling, additional visibility or controls, additional encryption? Like how does that break down at the, uh, the real brass tax level? Yeah, if you look at uh, the EUCS certification mm-hmm. on the higher level, so it's mandatory to encrypt data in transit. So that, for instance, is really a good thing that it, it's, within Aviatrix, it's it's done automatically for pretty you know for all transferred data within the fabric, right? Yes. While we're on the topic, I will say that at Aviatrix, our mantra or mindset, whatever you want to call it, has always been encryption all the time, end to end, everywhere. Yeah. So that there isn't any piece or part of your infrastructure that is unencrypted. Now, there are designs we offer where you can turn encryption off, but the default state of the platform is encrypt end to end everywhere all the time. Kind of set it and forget it. Mm-hmm. And then part of the attraction there is, you know, the speeds and feeds we can get help negate some of the difficulties customers have with end to end encryption and bottlenecking and so forth. Certainly, Aviatrix fits well into that paradigm of just end-to-end encryption. So do you see Aviatrix coming up in some of your designs or customer conversations? Not too much, but I think it's, um, it's really because of the, the companies I speak with. So yeah. they, they, they usually make a decision to go either sovereign slash private or they go to public. So we believe as a company, as Uniserver, we believe in a hybrid scenario, uh, yeah, well, in a hybrid scenario that should uh, help you, but should not hinder you to 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 decide per type of data, per type of workload, where that workload should land. Right. Uh, so we believe in hybrid scenarios, and we believe that aviatrix technology can help in that department. But in practice, I see companies choosing either type of cloud on their own because I think it's too complex, maybe. Or yeah, hybrid is where things get super messy, especially with sovereignty, right? I'm. Yeah. There are many heads and faces to that. I, I do have experience in, in that realm from previous jobs and, and engagements. I really would take it on a case-by-case basis and mm-hmm. look at the individual workload or application and the individual business as opposed to trying to kind of create some kind of boilerplate or blanket hybrid architecture. Every sovereign hybrid architecture, in my experience, was very much a snowflake. But there were some common tools and patterns that you could kind of bring to the table mm-hmm. in the encryption, IPsec, VPN, the ability to have a contiguous 
centralized control plane for your network and security policy. These things were very helpful because it was about which data resides where and whether that data is okay to move out of a sovereign space as long as it's not at rest. Mm -hmm. So for example, it was okay to have parts of the application and non-sovereign spaces that were interacting with sovereign data. So you could have, say, a front end in AWS or something that was off EU soil. But as long as the data was kept at rest in a sovereign space on EU soil, that was acceptable. What do you think about all that? No, I think each company should decide where workload has, has its best fit. To touch on that, if say you're a, you own a hospital or you're the IT department in a hospital, you have very uh, privacy sensitive medical data that is probably not allowed to leave the country or leave the EU. So it's, it's very sensitive, very protected. Mm -hmm. But also uh, you want to make use of the highly scalable functionality in AWS for maybe content delivery or platform as a service services, or you want to, to maybe to educate your patients on procedures procedures that they have to undergo. You put that information also with videos, you put it in AWS, let's say. And also there's a, there's a patient portal where they can make appointments, they can change their appointments, etc. But as soon as they touch in a patient portal, a place where they want to uh, see their medical data, the medical data cannot be in AWS. So there's, there must be ways for certain workloads to be able to mix, to be, to be there in a hybrid scenario. Some stuff you, you want to put in public cloud and other stuff you want to, to keep on your own soil. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. From my mind, again, spins to how this would look, you know, on the Lucid Chart or Visio diagram in order to really have tight boundaries around these different network spaces, VPCs, VNets. I mean, I would certainly want a default kind of network and routing segregation between these workloads. So I would put, say, my medical sensitive data in network spaces that had little to no routing connectivity to other kinds of data. You want to be in control. Yes, yes. And so that is where Aviatrix comes in. So if, if, if functionally wise, uh, all functionality is being offered uh, within a VMware environment, right. or, a, a, or anyhow in a sovereign cloud environment, you are really in control and you have a lot of visibility. Yeah, Aviatrix does have a secure edge device which sits right in the VMware stack. Uh, and can plumb VMware workloads right into the uh, rest of the Aviatrix cloud fabric, which is running in various public cloud or private cloud uh, infrastructures. So that is super helpful for sure. And then you get all of the control and visibility through that 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 you would in the the standard platform. Yeah, this way we we see a lot of possibilities to offer this, but in the end we don't speak a lot of that, uh, those possibilities uh, yet. Well, hopefully it will be coming soon. <laughs> any, any other final thoughts that you would like to, to share with our listeners about the future of, of sovereignty and what you see coming in terms of trends? Is it still going to be very much about, you know, building IaaS and, and doing it in the traditional way? Or do you see any changes coming around the corner that might be significant? Uh, technical changes or legislative uh, changes. Let's do technical. I mean, you've talked a lot about the legislative stuff coming, which is super informative, but I guess what I'm gunning for is, do you think VMware, and this is a, you know, again, a touchy question. Do you think VMware as a platform is going to stand the test of time for this kind of thing? 
or that people are going to push push for different kinds of of capabilities beyond what VMware could offer. Not to slight VMware, I mean obviously it's it's a phenomenal platform. It's been around for, for decades and decades, but I'm just wondering if if that's enough. A lot of it's going to depend on uh, what Broadcom is going to do. So mm-hmm. they're acquired, of course. I do see that Broadcom really has a very clear vision uh, towards, uh, or seems to have a clear vision towards sovereignty. Mm-hmm. The technology is very uh, mature and it helped us to to manage a sovereign cloud platform with the people that we have here in the building. Uh, a staff that is that has not had a need to grow expen- exponentially. And so mm-hmm. so it's it's really a linear growth almost, uh, if you look at the staff. So the technology is very good. So AWS and Azure, they have a very broad portfolio of platform as a service offerings. And it, there's not a, a cloud service provider of that size with that of a broad portfolio in Europe. Mm-hmm. So if legislation comes by and says, okay, a lot of workload needs to stay sovereign, it would be logical to to use VMware technology for that. Mm-hmm. It, it depends on on technical innovations that are coming. And I'm I'm not sure about what's what's going to happen in that department. But we do see still a lot of workloads coming from on-prem scenarios, all virtual machine based, coming mm-hmm. to our sovereign cloud. There's there's really a lot of talks uh, with us really for companies that 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 want to get rid of their own cloud infrastructure that they still own themselves, what, what, that is not part of their core business to really have or, or use. They just want to put our workloads uh, on a cloud platform. I guess I'm, I'm thinking more about my question and, and what was kind of behind it. Really, it's, it's about containers for me and agile workloads. And yeah. sorry to sound ignorant, but I'm 99% sure containers runs just fine on VMware, right? Because you deploy your, your CentOS or your Ubuntu mm-hmm. or your you know, yeah. whatever core Linux platform you want, and then you use your container ecosystem, yeah. be it Docker or Mesosphere or whatever, and it's blissfully unaware of, uh, of VMware. VMware's, you know, two stacks down or something. So do you see a lot of containers coming into, you know, to your cloud infrastructure? Not so much yet. Not, not yet. Uh, we do have an offering for that ourselves. So we, we have a managed container platform offering uh, that runs on top of VMware, of course. Okay, but I th- I think it has future because it it it's also good technology really to um, uh, to stay away as much as you can from vendor lock in. It makes workloads portable, yeah, and it's scalable, so and 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 good to manage. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that department. Yeah. Well, Rimco, this has been super informative and very helpful. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck and Godspeed with all of this crazy new legislation <laughs> that's going to be hitting you soon. I'm sure you're going to be a very busy man, but it sounds like Uniserver is doing phenomenally well and offers a really important service uh, yep. in the sovereign space. So for all of our listeners that, that need to focus on sovereign workloads in the EU, Rimco is your guy. Call us. We'll have a chat. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much.